Thank you. All right. Good evening. How is everyone tonight? Good. How many of you were here last night? Okay. How many are first you just showed up tonight? A few of you. Okay. Welcome. It's good to see you. And uh, real quickly, my name is Eric, obviously, and I live in Greenville, South Carolina. So I'm some neighbors to you. And if you've not been to Greenville, it's a beautiful city. It's an up and coming city. It's exploding. It's innovative, creative, and it's exactly where we are supposed to be. And we planted a church about six months ago called Studio. So if you're passing through the area or you want to take a little road trip a couple hours on the horrendous interstate called 85, please come and visit us. We will know that if you traveled on the 85 to come see us, I mean, you're committed. I mean, you are just committed, beautiful people. I want to share for a few minutes to the church just to encourage you guys before we even get into tonight's teaching or tonight's talk. I was just thinking during worship and just been kind of putting some thoughts together. And I want to encourage the church in some areas and obviously the leadership. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a gift to be here and uh, to meet new people in the area. And so it's just wonderful. But I want to speak to something. During, during worship, I, I got this picture and I saw there are things on the back shelf that need to be on the front shelf. I saw there were ingredients that were in the background but now need to be in the foreground. Everybody wants salt and pepper, but you have something else to give. And so I just saw this whole thing about whatever had been on the background. I don't know what that is. I can speculate. I can guess. But I have this sense there are things that have been sitting on the back shelf and there have been questions or thoughts like, when are we going to do this? When are we going to step out and do these things that are deeply, deeply important to you? And I feel like expectation is keeping those things on the back shelf. And I want to challenge you, those things on the back shelf actually need to be up front and center. And so I want to encourage you on that. Um, a couple of things along that line is, it's creativity is an interesting conversation. Uh, if you know me at all, I talk about creating and creativity all the time. Uh, if I get off track, I always find a way to come back. And I have this feeling, I have this strong sense that this house actually has a lot to create and it connected to bringing this to the foreground. Uh, creativity, uh, creating is not just a luxury. It's not, creating beauty isn't just a luxury, it's actually sustenance. Oh, that's good. And sometimes when we think of creating, we think of, oh, it's just something on the side, it's something cute, it's something nice, but it actually is so much deeper than that. It's so much, it has so much essence to it. And I want to encourage you, and I understand some of you in this room, whenever you hear the word creativity, you, you think of a subset, part of our culture, of people called creatives. The fact that you're created in the image of God, so creating is actually existential. Let me say this again, creating is existential. If you want to find out what it means to be human, create. Now, some of you are like, well, I don't paint. That's fine, but you do create something. You actually create the life that you're living. Creativity is needed for moms and dads because raising your kids, raising one kid is different than raising your second kid. What works on one kid does not work on kid number two, kid number three. And then just when you figure out what works, they, they grow up in age and all of a sudden everything that worked yesterday is no longer relevant. So being creative as a parent is how you stay alive. 
If you run a business, you know this, you know this every day. If you don't continually innovate in your business, you'll die off. So creating it's existential. The ability to create isn't just making something beautiful. And I love creating beauty and I love beauty. I love design. I love all of that. But if you get down to the minutia, if you get into the innards of creativity, it's actually existential. So I want to challenge you, for those of you in this room, you may not think, I don't paint, or I don't write songs, or I'm not into poetry, or I don't do design, or I don't do architecture. That's fine, but every human being has the capacity to create beauty. Yeah. It actually helps to figure out, to, to, it will help you to understand what it means to be human. So if you're asking the question, what it means to be human, create. Create something. Create something that brings beauty. Create something that brings life. And I want to challenge you. I really find there's something in this, in this, on this house, on you guys, and just the environment in this space. I feel like there's, there's stuff coming up, some amazing opportunity, but there's ideas that are on the back shelf that actually belong in the front center of the conversation. And because creating is actually sustenance. It's actually a, the essence of why we're human, why we're alive. And I believe creating is actually the currency of the future. Are you guys alive tonight? The front row is getting it. I don't know if the rest of the room is getting it. So if it's just front row tonight, I can live with that. I will, uh, I, I can, I will be fine with that. But I hope it's more than just the front row. If you want to know the currency of the future, it's the ability to create. Because guess what? Someone's creating the world that we live in. It can either be you or it can be someone else. Okay, that's it for now. I just wanted to encourage you in that. If you weren't here last night, I, I would encourage you to find a way to get the recording because I'm just going to segue off of last night directly into tonight. We talked a little bit about the universe and we talked about this, this space, this massive space. And we've talked about this idea that if you were to travel from one end of the universe, it would take they say, the current calculation, they would take over 200 trillion years at the speed of light to get from one end of the universe to the other end of the universe. What they're starting to realize now about this massive expanse is that it's not static. It's not just sitting in the space. It's actually moving. The entire universe is moving. So our, our Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy alone is moving within the universe and the universe is moving. So this whole concept, so the question is what's outside of that? I don't have a clue and no one does. And yet you drop down into the universe and all of a sudden you get into the galaxies and you have one called the Milky Way and that's where you and I, we're stuck on this rock, we're on this rock called Earth. And the placement of Earth in the solar system is, is so perfect. They say that if Earth was closer to the sun by one mile, the temperature on Earth would go up about five to 10 degrees Celsius. We wouldn't be alive. We would melt if the Earth was one mile closer to the sun. To so talk about perfection, talk about the ultimate design, talk about God placed everything in perfect distance in order for there to be life. And then, and then we drop down into earth and we drop down onto us and, 
And they say that the Earth on the equator actually rotating roughly 800 to 1,000 miles. Check. Right now, the Earth is rotating almost 1,000 miles per hour. It's just spinning at 1,000 miles per hour. And there's this thing called gravity that's keeping it stuck to this rock that's spinning. And they say that if the Earth stopped spinning, we'd all vaporize. So just talk about the design. I mean, God designed this. He yeah. thought about this. He, he meticulously thought about everything that was necessary so life could happen. He thought through all the equations. He thought through physics. He thought through quantum physics. He thought through science, the biology. He thought through all of this and put Earth in a perfect spot so life could happen. And then he thought about the sun, that the light would come off the sun. And as the photons penetrate the atmosphere of the Earth, it creates life. And I can't help but think that when we turn our hearts to God, when, when we finally recognize we are not the king of ourselves, when we finally recognize we are not the Lord of our lives, that we are not the name above all names, that we simply are humans and that we live in a broken world. And the moment we recognize that, and the moment we recognize that our hearts are to turn to Jesus, it is in that moment we become redeemed. But something else happens. The Spirit comes into you. The Spirit of God from another dimension, not even in the dimension of the universe, as big as that is, the Spirit outside of that dimension travels instantly across all the expanse that would take you and I 200 trillion years to get from one end to the other. Instantly, the Spirit shows up and takes residence in your soul. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it said, we are his workmanship created to do good things. The word workmanship is a really cool word. It actually means masterpiece. And the word masterpiece is a really beautiful word because it, it describes something as something rare. Now, if you've not traveled to Paris or Rome or Barcelona, put it on your bucket list because they're some of the most magical cities. They're just stunning in every way. The architecture, the history, the design, the, the art is just unbelievable. And you, you go into these spaces and you look at these pieces of art. And I remember the first time I saw the Mona Lisa, I was a teenager. We were on our way to Kiev, Ukraine, and we traveled through Europe and took us a long time to get through Europe. And and on part of the trip, which I spent a couple of days in Paris, and I remember excited to see the Mona Lisa, because it's, you know, it's the Mona Lisa. It's the painting everybody talks about in school and the history books and everybody talks about. And I remember walking through the Louvre and just excited to see them. I was a teenager. I, would, I didn't have much life lived yet, but I knew what the Mona Lisa meant. And I remember walking into this room and I was shocked at how small this thing was. I had, I had an idea that it'd be at least some decent size, but it's not. It's just this little painting. <laughs> and this entire room is dedicated to this little painting. <laughs> and so once I got over the shock of it, and just like, oh, it's that small. It's actually not that big. 
And I remember going in, you know, there's lines of people and then you can come up to it and you just kind of look at it. And, you know, thankfully, I went back and not just a few years ago before the pandemic and spent a little bit more time. You know, I, I learned something when you go to Paris, go when the World Cup is playing and when France is playing, because all the museums are empty. <laughs> And so we went to the Louvre when France was playing, I forget, I think Belgium or Germany, I can't remember the game, and, and the Louvre was empty. It was the best experience ever. No one was there. So there's no line, there's nothing. We just got to cruise like we own the place. So I remember going back and looking at this, and here I'm looking at this masterpiece, this painting that continues to confound humanity. Is she smiling or not? But it's elegant. It's a stunning painting. And yet it's so simple and so forth. It's a masterpiece. I remember going to see Michelangelo David in Florence, Italy. It's one of my most favorite pieces of art is Michelangelo David. It's stunning. I remember weeping, looking at this sculpture or this carving out of stone. And I remember behind, you know, it's 17 feet tall. It's, it's, it's significant in size. And it's on this pedestal that's about, you know, six to eight feet tall. So you're looking up at this just beautiful white marble statue. And on the backside, there's these benches to sit on. And, you know, everybody's looking at it. So finally somebody left. I sat down and now I'm looking at his behind. <laughs> and I was moved <laughs> by the veins. Well, what do you what do you guys think I'm moved by? I was moved by the veins that Michelangelo carved in his arms. Wow. I was moved by the texture, the, the muscle, the sinew, moved by the, the form and the shape. of. And I just remember just sitting there for 45 minutes, two hours, just deeply moved. See, that's a masterpiece. I could go on and on, go to the Colosseum in Rome. You know, whenever you go see a Colosseum in Rome, go watch Gladiator that same day. <laughs> It makes the movie even better. See, these are masterpieces. And the challenge that we have with masterpieces is that we think they're rare. Humanity calls them masterpieces because it's rare. In fact, most of these great artists created one masterpiece in their lifetime. And one of the reasons why a lot of them got really depressed and some suicidal and some got really mentally ill is because the pressure of the world to create another masterpiece became too great for their soul to bear. So this idea of masterpiece is a fascinating concept because to us in human terms, in earthly terms, is something rare. You only get to do it once, maybe, if you're gifted. But here we're talking about God who creates masterpieces. He's the only one in all of existence, that everything he creates is a masterpiece. No one else can create something every time to be a masterpiece except him. So he created you and me. And he said, this is my masterpiece. This is my masterpiece. This is my masterpiece. I want you to imagine with me, there's a dinner table up here. And around this dinner table, we have numerous people sitting at it. And on one chair, we have, we have an atheist. We have an, a person that's considered himself or herself an atheist. And just for fun, let's put an agnostic next to the atheist. And let's see who can convince each other which is right. 
That was a joke, but none of you got it, but that's okay. <laughs> and then, then at the next person at the table, we're going to put a Muslim. We're going to put a Muslim imam, and this person is sitting at this table. And, and next to the Muslim imam, we have a Buddhist. And then on the head of the table, or around this corner of the table, we have a Hindu. And then, and then over here, we've got, we've got someone that we would call a Christian. Imagine the conversations at that table. Would there be a conversation? Imagine what kind of food would be on that table. We know water would work because some of the belief system wouldn't allow certain foods to be near them. So we know hummus would probably be on the table because everyone's okay with hummus. <laughs> and pita chips and olives and, and all of that. Wonderful things. But it would be a very interesting conversation. But let's ask some questions here. Who would be the one that has the most empathy at this table? Who at this table would have just incredible empathy for people? Who at this table would have incredible compassion on the people at that table? Who, who at this table would have a high level of intelligence at this table? Who would that be? Who at this table would have such an elegance about them? That the elegance of communication, the elegance of soul, you feel connected to that person when they talk. Who at this table would be just smart? They just got the smart thing going on. Uh, this isn't a competition, and, I, and I'm not wanting to be condescending. I just want to bring this, bring this to light to maybe show you something that I just don't know if the Christian would actually win or even get the answers to those questions. Especially in today's context and environment, the narrative around our people, if you will. Sounds funny saying that, so forgive me for even phrasing it that way. But think about this for a moment. Would the Christian be considered the most person with the most empathy? I think in today's context, they'd be known as the greatest protester. The one that protests a lot. In fact, everyone knows what they're against and not what they're for. I have to ask the question, would the Christian be the, someone that has incredible empathy for everyone else at the table? Would they be intelligent? Would they be considered intelligent, smart, kind, elegant? Would they? Now, there are exceptions to this, so this isn't so black and white, but let's, right now, just for example, let's take the Christian and put the Christian somewhere else, and let's put Jesus at the table. Uh, now, who has the most empathy? Who, who's elegant? Who had elegance of elegance? Who, who has the empathy that would reach every soul sitting at that table? Who would have compassion on the atheist and understand their story of why they are an atheist? Instead of protesting, I wonder if he would have compassion and empathy for the story that that person went through. Imagine the Buddhist. What would Jesus do to the Buddhist who chooses to worship a stone god, a wooden idol? Do you think Jesus would be protesting? Do you think Jesus would actually be coming at him? Or maybe he'd be so elegant with his words and he'd be able to articulate a language that would touch the soul of this human that believes in Buddhism. So let's ask the question, what's the gap between us and Jesus? 
Why, why, why is this such an equation that seems so impossible to solve? Why is this a dilemma? Why is this a current reality for us? She agrees. <laughs> you see, when, when the Spirit comes into your life, when God shows up in your life, it's not just to take up space. It's not just to be there. Now, there's an aspect where God just wants to be with us. He made it clear through the Old Testament. He made it clear through the first portion of Scripture in the Bible. He's like, I just want to be among my people. So we know there's an essence or there's an element, an aspect of God just wanting to be with you. In fact, he told Moses, please build me a tent so I can at least reside in the tent near you. I want to go camping with you all. So we know there's some element, there's some aspect, but we also know that, that God actually wants to be with us, and there's actually a purpose. A few years ago, my wife and I, um, I was doing a conference in South Africa, and she was doing a conference in Guatemala. We in two different parts of the world. And we were, we were going to meet in Spain and do a conference in Spain. It was a really busy month. And I said, why don't, why don't we just meet in Barcelona after our two trips, spend three days in Barcelona, and then let's go do this conference together. And we're empty nesters. So we're like a kid that just kind of graduated, and we're like, man, let's go. So we just like, let's just travel. And so we went to Barcelona, and we didn't have much schedule. We had a couple things planned. My wife and I, we like to go to these cities, and we like to just spontaneously walk around and see what we run into. We've done it in most cities around the world. And we have a few things we like to do. But there's one particular place in Barcelona that we wanted to check out. It's Sagrada Familia. It's the Basilica of the Holy Family. It started construction in 1822, and it's still not finished. It's this interesting cathedral, as you and I would call it, but it's called a basilica. The architect name is Gaudi. Now, Gaudi, many nicknamed him as God's architect. And if you've not looked at Sagrada Familia, I'd encourage you tonight, not right now, but tonight, just do a quick Google search on it, use some YouTube videos. It's, it's, a, very, it's a mixture of Gothic and Art Nouveau style, which is not my style. I don't, I don't have a taste for it. I, I kind of think it's odd, it's weird. And what makes this so fascinating, because it's taken so long to build, there's different eras that it was built in. So even the material different, the style are different, you can walk around this massive basilica huge and you look at it and you're like I don't understand what the continuity is it's, it's almost distracting and it's a little disturbing because you're like I don't understand this it, and I remembered it but I wanted to see it because it's, it's a masterpiece even though I don't like it doesn't mean it's not a masterpiece and I remember we were reading about it we, you know, we got our tickets and we're in line and, and we walk into this thing and all of a sudden when I stepped into the inside of this beautiful basilica on the outside I couldn't stand it it was disturbing it bothered me but once I got on the inside I began to realize oh the beauty on the inside explained what's happening on the outside and inside this cathedral we happened to hit it at the perfect time of day it was like four or five in the afternoon and the sun is shining through these stained glass windows that are red yellow green vibrant colors and all of a sudden the entire inside of the basilica is lit up with this vibrant light it's illuminating it's stunning in these Big stone pillars that are shaped like trees with branches are holding this basilica up. And the whole idea of these, these stone 
tree pillar that it's heaven touching earth. And you get into the inside of the story and you got, you know, we got the audio headphones on and we're, we are full blown tourists just <laughs> absorbing every second. And you go point one, we stand there and listen to point one. We go to point two and I don't, I don't remember how many points there were, but we're getting this history, this beautiful story of what's happening in this building. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, you have to get on the inside to understand what's happening on the outside. And so much so, when God is on the inside of you, it begins to explain what's happening on the outside of you. So when the Spirit is in your life, we have to ask the question, what's the point? Why is God in you? We just embrace it like, cool, God lives in us, but why? What is it about God living in us that makes it so special? Well, for one, we are His masterpiece. And he wants to be sure that we are a masterpiece. Yes. So what God is doing on the inside of you is he tr- as he transcends every dimension known to man and he lives inside of you, what does he bring? He brings stuff that Apostle Paul called gifts. He brings these gifts, and you can read about them in Scripture, and some say there's four, there's five, there's seven, there's nine, there's a lot of gifts. I just can't help but think God, gifts are beyond our ability to understand. And the Apostle Paul did his best, and he's brilliant to describe these gifts, whether it's in prophecy, or whether it's in signs and wonders, and miracles, or administration, some are given the gift of wisdom, the ability to understand things that no human can understand. So this whole idea of God living inside of us is to bring us gifts. But then there's the next question, then what? What happens then? If you have your Bible, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read a passage in there. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Say that with me, free. Free. Let's read it again. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Let's jump down to verse 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So here we have these gifts that come into your life. They're actually things that God gives us. And what's crazy about gifts, you don't get to choose which ones you get. And some of us in the room, I want that one. It's not, a, it's not your choice. It's something God gives you. But then we talk about the fruit. What are the fruits of the Spirit? They're the result of God in your life. This one, you get all of them. The gifts, you don't get any choice, but the fruits of the Spirit, guess what? You don't get to choose which ones you get. Now, what's fascinating about the fruits of the Spirit is that you actually need a context to learn if you actually have the fruits of the Spirit. So, kindness. Now, If you're only around kind people, I don't think you really know if you're that kind. (laughs) You actually need a context that's the opposite of what's in you. And some of us are in the context that's just like you. And like, man, I'm so kind because everyone's kind. (laughs) 
The question is, can you get in an unkind environment where evil is rampant in the soul of someone and that person interacts with you out of the morbidness of what's going on inside of them? It's in that moment you begin to realize, oh, I don't have the fruits of the spirit in my life. The resident of the spirit of God is actually not deep. It's an idea, but it's not something deep in my soul. Patience. Let's talk about patience. Man, patience is one thing you cannot give away. You can inspire people with patience. You can say, man, you should be patient. You know what? You were really short with me the other day. You need to be patient next time you talk to me. I mean, you can do all of that. You can sit down with your kids and tell them the value of patience, why it's important. Here's the, the Greek. Here's the Hebrew. Here's the English. Here's all the explanation of the word patient. But unless they get in a context to find out if they're patient, they will never know if they're patient. Some of us are saying no to hard things. Don't say no to anything hard if you want to find out the Spirit's actually in you. Self-control. Self-control is one of the, man, I wish I, someone could give me that one. Some of you really need someone to give you self-control. We live in a day and age where self-indulgence is like the highest priority. The, the idea of I can get what I want whenever I want. Which is pretty phenomenal. Today, one of our young gals in our church posted a picture of a sweater, a sweatshirt that she liked from this certain company. She said, man, I love this sweatshirt. Just made a comment about it. Right there, I was able to go directly on the website, push a button, it's ordered, it's going to be shipped to her. She had no clue it's coming. Like, that is awesome. The ability to get whatever you want in an instant. Talk about a context to learn to find out if you have self-control. It's right now. Goodness, to find out if you got good in you, you need to step into darkness. You need to step into the human depths of darkness. And you don't have to go very far anymore to run into that, to find out what's actually living in you. Some of you need to actually test if the Spirit of God is actually living in you. And I understand, you know, we're all coming from different backgrounds. I don't know everyone's story. But I come from a part of the church that really loves to talk about the, the gifts of the Spirit. We love to talk about the power of God. And we should. It's, it should never not be a conversation. We love to talk about God shows us something for someone's life and we're able to prophesy and we're able to, to pray for people and they get healed. Like all of that is wonderful. I love it. It should always be a conversation. But we actually don't talk about the result of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit. And sometimes we go, man, yep, I got the power. But the question is, do you have the character? I think it's, it, it's the design of God. God's going to design a universe to such perfection that what He thought about the Spirit of God in you, He thought about all the details. You know, He wants you to walk in that power, but He also wants you to be a man or woman of deep character. Joy. I mean, let's talk about joy for a moment. What's incredible right now is we live in a really weird time in human history. And believe it or not, there's been weirder and darker times than this. This is not Babylon, by the way. 
This is nothing like Babylon. You think this is like Babylon? You haven't read the history enough. This is actually light compared to the darkness of Babylon. But for us, it feels like what it feels like. Man, what an opportunity to step into a chaotic, confusing time in history in our lives and be a person that actually has joy. Yes. That actually has kindness. Yes. That actually has self-control. Yes. This is the evidence that God is working in your life. So when we talk about masterpiece, when we talk about God creating the orchestration of how a universe works, what he's doing in you has the ability to change humanity simply from goodness, from joy, from kindness, self-control. So you need a context to find out if it's actually within you. The faster society becomes, the harder it is to live out patience. The advancement of evil on earth provides us with an opportunity to do good. If you want patience, then don't avoid hard things in life. If you want to see kindness take place in your life, then don't limit yourself to only nice people. If you want to see peace in your life, then make sure you know what it's like to fight for something that costs you everything. We should always err on the side of being good, of being patient, of being kind. Some of you interacting with other humans, most of it's through social media because we feel really powerful on our soapboxes on social media and we just, you know, we just like to stick it to them. Some of you wake up every day thinking about what can I do to tick a bunch of people off? I'm going to post something. It's mostly 60-year-old, I've learned. It's, it's mainly 60-year-old because by the time you get to 60, you don't care what people think anymore. When you're 20, 30, 40, you care too much. 40, you start to die. And then you're 50, you're like, I just want to enjoy my life. By the time you get 60, you're just like, I don't care what anybody thinks of me anymore. And that's an amazing combination when a 60-year-old and social media meet. It's, you're laughing because it's so true. Some six-year-olds in this room, you'd literally go to bed going, what am I going to post tomorrow that's going to make a bunch of people upset? And you get so much joy out of it. You get such a kick out of it. And on the heels of that, we should always err on being kind. If you don't know what to do in today's climate, be kind. It should never be, should I be kind to that human or not kind to them? We always err on the side of kindness. Should I be good right now? Or should I be really ornery right now? <laughs> Always err on the side of good. Yes. Should I have any self-control in this moment right now? Yes. <laughs> Choose self-control. Should I be happy when I want to be depressed and sad and sit in the bottom of the ocean of my soul? Yes, you should be joyful. You should choose joy. Like we should always err on the side of goodness, of faithfulness, of long suffering. Should I stick this out and I have no idea when it's going to end? Yes, that's long suffering. 
that perseverance of like, I'm just going to choose. I can't see the end, the light at the end of the tunnel. And we live in a day and age where we are glorifying our desires over what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us. We're living in a day where we're getting more and more focused on self and what I want to do, what I feel like doing. I'm not in the mood anymore. I don't. I only do what I feel like doing. And we live in this cycle of human secularism. What an opportunity for you and I in the midst of that to choose joy, to choose long suffering, to choose faithfulness, to choose self-control, to choose goodness, to choose kindness. What a moment. What an opportunity for masterpieces to emerge. How in the world do you have self-control when every desire of your flesh is in one click away? How can you not push that? How can you not look at that? How can you not acquire that? Because I have chosen to be God's masterpiece. I have chosen for him to chip off all the rough edges. I have chosen to let him take a brush stroke of genius to reveal his beauty in my life. I've chosen to be his masterpiece. That's what I'm choosing. So always err on the side of goodness. Always err on the side of kindness. You see, you and I are called to respond differently. We're not called to respond the way everyone else responds. We're not called to be offended the way the world gets offended. We just don't respond that way. And Jesus does it perfectly. He stepped into a time in the human story that was dark. That was oppressive. And everyone alive wanted Jesus to overthrow the Roman Empire. In fact, two disciples, their mom came to Jesus and said, Jesus, you know to my boys, I brought them in this world. I pushed them out. And what I would like, Jesus, is when you get on the throne, I want them to sit next to you on your right side and your left side. She was not talking about the throne in heaven. She was talking about the throne of political power that would overthrow all their oppressors. She was talking about that throne. The pressure for Jesus to overthrow the Roman Empire was immense. The expectations were high. Understandably so. I mean, when you're being oppressed for over 400 years, and you hear a Messiah's coming, and you hear someone is coming, so imagine being alive in that moment when it's no longer this promise that has traveled through your generations of your people, but you're in a moment where that promise is in person, in flesh, right there. And little by little, more and more people to go, that's the Messiah. That's the one that our history books have been pointing towards. So imagine the excitement of like, oh my gosh, the Messiah is here. The Messiah is going to overthrow our oppressors. Because the solution is always oppress the oppressors. That was another joke, but you didn't get it, but that's okay. <laughs> and so Jesus steps up to preach his first sermon. Imagine the excitement in the crowd that day. Oh, today political campaign. We're voting for this guy. He's our candidate. He's going to win the nomination and we are going to the throne of Rome. 
Imagine the excitement. Imagine the ballot. Imagine just the flags waving, the Messiah party. I mean, whatever. I don't know whatever they called it then, but they called it something. And Jesus steps up in Matthew 5 to preach what is considered the greatest sermon of Jesus. I don't know if that's true, but that's what they say. Because I think everything Jesus said was awesome. But he stepped up, and here's his first words. Blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> Let me just pose a question to you. If you're in that crowd that day, and your expectation for the Messiah to overthrow the Roman Empire, what do you expect to come out of their mouth? Down with Rome. We're going to take back what had been taken from us. And Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. They're like, huh, this is not what I thought was going to happen. Blessed are the meek. What's going on here? Imagine what's happening in the crowd that day. Like we only see the words of Matthew. I'm telling you, that crowd that day would... We're starting to get more disturbed, more disturbed. Then into Jesus' teaching, he starts to say, hey, when someone comes and asks you to walk a mile, walk two. Do you know who he's talking to? Because within the Roman law, within the Roman system of oppression, a Roman soldier could walk up to you, if you were a Jewish person, could walk up to you and say, I need you to carry my pack a mile for me. You had no choice or will in that moment. You had to stop whatever you were doing, put on the pack, and it was a duty. It was written into the code of the Roman Empire. You had to carry their pack for a mile. So Jesus is basically saying, let the oppressors oppress you. And he said, don't just go the one mile requirement, go two. Talk about overthrowing Rome. This is a very interesting political campaign. And then Jesus, oh yeah, and by the way, when they slap you, he's talking about the Roman Empire, Roman soldiers. When they slap you, give them the other cheek. Jesus is breaking down this system of thought that it's how the world responds when they're oppressed. So you and I, we don't respond the same way the world wants to respond. We respond with kindness. We respond with intelligence. We respond with empathy. We respond with brilliance. We respond with a different material than the world wants to respond to. What's fascinating about creativity, I'm going to land this in just a minute here. What's fascinating about creativity in this conversation, I mean, creativity, to create something actually means to create something original and useful. That's the general definition of creating, is to create something original and useful. What's interesting about creativity is that whenever a creative person, which I believe everyone is, is confronted with a problem, and instantly, when you're confronted with a problem, your brain begins to try to figure out what's an obvious solution to this problem. And when your brain cannot latch onto something that's an obvious solution to the problem, all of a sudden there's a part of your brain that's called divergent thinking. And now what your brain does, it goes into hyperdrive. And all of a sudden it starts to search everything in your life that you've ever experienced. Have you ever noticed in these moments you remember things like, oh, I totally forgot that that actually happened. It de it's reaching into the file system in your brain and it's pulling up experiences, maybe an article you read or what someone told you. 
And all of a sudden it's pulling into these moments and all of a sudden divergent thinking is reaching across all the data that it has access to in that moment. And all of a sudden when it finds something, it can make sense. Oh, this might work for this current problem right now. Convergent thinking kicks in and it latches onto that idea, pulls it into the consciousness of the human mind, and all of a sudden now we have a solution. This is why creativity is dynamic and powerful today. We are confronted with problems today. We're confronted with dynamics today. So we're not talking about just painting beautiful painting. We're talking about solving the crisis in humanity with creativity. It's the currency of the future. So the ability to go, okay, what do I do in this moment? This is a funny story, but a friend of mine, we were, we were vacationing in Santa Cruz, California, which is Monterey, Carmel. It's beautiful there. And we were laying on the beach, and it was my wife and I and another couple, and our kids were just playing on the beach. And my friend's wife, she's laying there on the beach. She happened to be um, our number two staff at Bethel. And we're laying there, and all of a sudden, the bug flies in her, in her ear. And it's like, ah, oh, and you can hear her talking, you know, just like a little bug, a little fly of some sort. And then she starts to scream. Ah! And it wasn't coming out. It was going deep into her brain. So she's like freaking out. She sits up and we're all like, we don't know what to do. Like, it's just a bug that went into her ear and it's just burrowing. It's burrowing. She can't get out. She's hitting it. And in that second, I remember watching a video two weeks ago. Random, super random. And in this video, someone said, if anything crawled in your ear and you can't get it out, pour water in your ear. It'll drown it and it'll come out. So in this moment, my brain trying to figure out what to do. It watched that video. Oh, put water in her ear. So we took a water, turned her head sideways, poured water into it. And all of a sudden, this little bug came out of her ear because it was drowning. That's creativity. It's divergent thinking, working to find a solution. Why do you think Daniel... In that moment, decided to eat, not eat the king's food and eat the food that he wanted to eat in Daniel chapter 1. That's divergent thinking. He's trying to find a way to be creative in this moment of conflict. You see, what we're great at is drawing the line in culture and not engaging anymore when it violates our morals or our standards. We lose all creativity and we stand on moral high ground and we shout from moral high ground how we're right and they're wrong. God's expecting something else to come out of us. And that is the ability to dive into divergent thinking and think creatively to then provide solution to the current situations. I'm ranting now and I can feel it, but I enjoy it. I, uh, I give myself permission to rant. Because honestly, I'm a little disturbed at how Christians are responding in today's climate. I think we can do better. Yeah. Yes. I think we can be more intelligent. Yeah. I think we can be way more thoughtful. Yeah. It doesn't mean we become silent. It doesn't mean we become a sideshow. No, it actually means goodness, faithfulness, kindness, joy, self-control, long-suffering. All those things that God said, this is what happened when the Spirit's in your life. Yeah. So here's my last question for you. When we look at our lives, do we know who the artist is? Do we know who's created us? Do, you know, do we know who's formed us? And Paul says it this way, why are you acting like mere humans? Which is funny, because we're human. It's like, well, 
Is there another option? And what Paul is saying, you're a new creation. Don't act like new human, act like a new creation. So my challenge to you, to this church, but to everybody in this room, when someone looks at your life, when you look at your life, can you say, I know who the artist is? Why don't you stand? Before I close and hand it back over, I just want to say thanks for listening me rant for just a little bit. Um, but thanks for having me, you guys. Enjoy being here and just enjoy being in your guys' midst and in this presence. And I love what's happening in this room. And I'm excited to see what unfolds in the days and weeks to come. And I'm just going to close in prayer. I believe the last two nights had mainly just want my whole heart had just been to share and to help you move into great hope and to move into the future. And so the, uh, the, the theme of this conference or the name of this conference is some of my favorite words in my, my language. And so it was fun to come. And so, Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for these people. And I thank you that you're getting ready to launch them into a new space that we call the future. And it's beauty. They're going to create beauty everywhere they go. Everything they do is going to be beautiful. And it's not just for the sake of something beautiful, but it's actually existential. And I pray for everyone in this room. Recognize that what it means to be human, part of it is to create, is to create life. It's to create goodness. It's to create kindness. It's to walk in self-control, to walk in joy and generosity. And Father, I just pray for every person in this room. We walk out of this room tonight with this realization of like, I want to know if the Spirit's real inside of me. Not just in great head knowledge or great theology, but also where I can step into dark situations and what comes out of me is goodness, kindness. And when I step into situations that are just taking, that are devastated, that generosity would come out of me. And when I step in a situation that, that I want to indulge, that I learn to activate self-control. And when I step into giving my life to something, I'm willing to suffer long for that very thing. And I pray this would be the, the marker, the traits of everyone in this room moving forward. So I bless this house. I bless the vision. And I, God, I ask that you would expand it. Yeah. I ask that you give them more strategic minds, more strategic thinking of how to move into a future filled with hope. Yeah. And I pray that this house would be known to the space that knows how to create the future. And everybody said, Amen. 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 Thank you, everyone. Bless you.